Professor Forsyth, it's a great privilege to interview you for the Elman Scholars Archive. You've had a varied and illustrious career, which started in the early days of the implementation of the National Party's controversial racial policies in South Africa, when you were an undergraduate at the University of Pietermaritzburg. It progressed via Cambridge, Canterbury, Cape Town, until you established yourself at Cambridge once more in the 1980s, where you became a fellow of Robinson College and ultimately the inaugural Sir David Williams Professor of Public Law at Cambridge University. On this very journey, you became, into earlier, a renowned expert on South African constitutional and judicial matters, UK administrative law, and a sought-after constitutional consultant for emerging Commonwealth countries. You also have close links with the law faculty at the University of Hong Kong. During this time, you've written numerous books and journal articles, and I'm sure that our readers will listen with great interest to your views and your reminiscences on this wide range of topics and some of the controversies you have encountered. So could we start with your early life? You were born in 1950, two years after the National Party took over the governments of South Africa in 1948. Can you mind to interrupt for a moment? I noticed in the notes that it said I was born in 1950. I was born in 1949. Thank you very much. I don't know how that came about. Thank you. Could you uh, tell us something about your early life? Um, your, were you born in, in this country or were you born in South Africa? I, after the war, my father stayed in the army and was seconded to the British army to work in signals and radar. And that's how I came to be living in. In England, my parents came to be living in England in the late 1940s, 1950s. And I was born in England and I was strong South African connections. I wondered about that. So your parents were actually South African? Yes. Yes. Right. And uh, I wouldn't be interested to go into the details of uh, which parts were South African, which parts were British, or whatever. That was a mixed bag. Um, yes. Uh, so, your uh, primary, any, any other background information before you moved to your primary school? No, I don't think so. Um, and bearing in mind, of course, for the readers, that you grew up in the 50s and 60s, um, immediately after the 1948 election. And while you were still at primary school, you do remember the 1958 general election for Inigo, when could see a nationalist candidate won, and your mother explained the politics to you. Yes. It was, I was, I think, about eight years old. Um, we had to get out of the way quickly because uh, this group of robber and busters probably slightly drunk when we were coming down the road. They were celebrating the victory of Barkers here. And I didn't understand why quite what we came on and I mother explained the rough the rough outline of how politics worked. And it seemed to me as soon as she explained it that it was fundamentally unjust that 
black people should have votes. And so, on that very early stage, under the tuition of my mother, my essentially liberal political views were established. The other thing that I might mention, if we're talking about my childhood, I, my father left the army now, back in South Africa working as an electric engineer in a large industry. Um, and this was, of course, in Ferenheim, which is notorious for being the home of the shuffle shooting. And uh, I remember the shuffle shooting very clearly uh, with the uh, shuffle massacre, perhaps we should call it, very, very, very clearly. And the going out of breaking in my, my, on my primary school, you see the plane circling overhead. That had, that had come ready to drop bombs if necessary. And we, we saw the fire fly around about high school and then going out to change my library books and two armored cars standing beside the side of the library. So, and my father again going to work and going to work in rough clothes because he was going to spend the day shoveling coal into the boilers rather than let them out because all the workers had gone on strike. Those are my memories of one side of the barricades of the Shuffle Massacre. Any particular significance about the experience that I've relate in this interview. My I hope my voice isn't too soft to be recorded. No, I wouldn't worry about it. We'll be able to make you very audible. Thank you. That's probably a reasonable place to stop with the with the video. I think that's a lovely, yes, introduction. That's one stop there. you again and I'm really looking forward to hearing the interview it's yeah. fascinating and I'll speak to you in a great nice to see you again good to see you
Francis Forsyth, you did secondary schooling at St. Stephen's College and a stained Kricher. This was in Sandton, Johannesburg, and you were influenced by your English teacher, David Brindley. And uh, I wonder if you could say something about this early mentor. Well, why not? I think it's worth mentioning in the context of this interview in particular is that it turns out that David Dysonizer and I had the same, uh, another intermediate series, had the same English teacher in the form of David Brindley. Um, the, the difference between our two situations was that he was a little, a year or two after I was taught by, by Mr. Brindley, as we called him. But apart from that, and then in different schools, uh, I was at Sisterians. And, and Brindley was teaching in Woodmean, the school that was founded by Stan Cricker, when he was sacked as head, headmaster of St. Stephen's College for being too liberal. Well, uh, that was the. Was, uh, so I, I, I was in, had my secondary education in, in St. Stephen's College. And in the end, I suppose I was quite successful at it. In that I, I was ducks at the school at the end. Although I certainly didn't start at the top of the class. I sort of somehow managed to get to the top of the class by the time the school, school for ended. St. Stillian's was a Methodist foundation. But it was, if not expressly, it was impliedly founded on the ideals of an English public school. Houses and team spirit, and lots of sport and cold showers and so forth and so on. That's suitable. Um, but I'm very grateful to Switzerland because it, it confirmed a lot of my understanding of political views as well. Somewhere in the bunch of arts and civilians, it was not official motto or anything, but it was talk, talked about creating liberal Christian gentlemen. Of course, they were only gentlemen, they were all male school at that time, although not today, of course. Um, Christians, not to the Ephesus Foundation, uh, and liberals, uh, liberal Christian gentlemen. Uh, I don't know how many of those I can claim to afford. Full, full, uh, two out of three branches and two branches. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the masters, particularly the, the ones who came from England, it was quite a usual thing to do to get someone like uh, Brindley, who was a very young man. Uh, he just got his Cambridge degree, or might have been an Oxford degree, I don't know, until. I know his academic hood was was furry. It was the sign of a candidate candidate or Oxford to be at the time. Um, he every every year there'd be one or two people from, from the United Kingdom who come out. I I had finished their degree in the, in the UK and they come and spend two or three years teaching in South Africa. Some of them stayed, some of them 
Mobility was an absolutely inspiring teacher of English. Uh, and if, if my writing has any clarity and color in it, it must in part be due to Ringley's teaching, great enthusiasm for, uh, for vigorous English and the use of color and metaphor and so forth. And I can remember that um, Macbeth, of course, was one of our Shakespeare plays, and we took Macbeth to pieces uh, in, in English classes. And um, he was very impressive, and I had a, uh, a, a great effect on me. And I think um, David Eisenhower was would say much the same thing about him. So I, it's intriguing that this was this one man should have been so influential in the lives of two two interviewees. Indeed, yes. And uh, David Eisenhower will come up again when we speak about your um, interest involvement in the Truth and Reconciliation mm -hmm. Commission. Uh, your academic success at St. Stithians propelled you to the University of Natal in Peter Maritzburg. And although you, uh, one would think from what you've said, you excelled English, you were obviously very good at maths because you read maths and you did a BSc in mathematical statistics and maths as well as two years of economics, for which you received a first class result in your first year. Um, what made you decide not to follow maths as a career? That's a very good question. Uh, and I couldn't think of it about it. Yes. It was something that took, took, took place over a period of time. My mother, first of all, was, I think she was the only woman in her class reading maths at UCT before the war. And so she was a, a mathematician. And she became a formidable teacher of mathematics. Um, and so in, in one sense it was the family business of mathematics. Um, my father, as an engineer, also had a great deal of especially applied mathematics in his, in his background. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that I was thinking of, thinking of maths. And I realized uh, my family of mathematics that I probably wasn't good enough to be a really good mathematician. And I didn't want to spend my life teaching maths at a secondary school. But I probably would want to be good enough to teach maths at home at a university. So I was looking for something else to do. And I was becoming more and more politically involved in it. I wanted to do something about it to, 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 to make my career or life, doing something about combating the injustices that were everywhere in South Africa. Right? And so that's why it seemed to me that Law might be in the direction to go. I thought I had 
naive ideas about using the law to create the material. And these were, I would now think, of relatively naive ideas, but they, they turned me towards Orbit's law. Um, and I don't think I don't regret that decision. But it did mean, does mean, I think it still does to this day, that my approach to law is always logical and conceptual and founded in fundamental principles that one hopes everybody can agree. You agree about, and then you can move on to see what else is implied by that agreement. So that's how I turned to law. And the law school in Peter Maddox, which I naturally shifted into, um, was, I think, one of, the, one of the best law schools in South Africa. It was head, headed by a, another man who was very influential in my life. Professor Exton Birchall, who um, uh, was part of the furniture of the Peter Madsburg Law School. Of course, in those days, law schools were very small, only about a dozen or a dozen and a half members of staff. And so members of staff had to spread themselves pretty soon, teach a great many subjects. So I was taught by many subjects by Exton Birchall. We used to call him the RM, or reasonable man, because he was always reasonable, thoughtful, perceptive, and logical in his, his approach to legal problems. So we were, we as students were much impressed by that. I accent virtual be the RM. And in a way, his, his why I came to Cambridge at all, in that. He was a Cambridge man, he'd been a Nelson Bellot scholar at Clare, I think. Might have been Trinity Hall, no, Trinity Hall. Um, so he was a Cambridge man, so when I sort of tentatively approached him, uh, so I, I was thinking of studying abroad, at least gave me the possibility of studying abroad. He said, well, yes, of course, you'll be going to Cambridge. <laughs> And uh, he stepped this firmly in the direction of Cambridge. And uh, the rest is history. So, while you were, before you came to Cambridge, still at Peter Marisburg, any um, recollections of life on campus and how it perhaps resonated with the political developments unfolding in South Africa at the time? Peter uh, Hatchburg was a liberal university, um, and so uh, although the liberal universities were not perfect, not by any manner of means, they were a remarkable survival in the rather horrific circumstances of South Africa. And I think there were some very good noble and brave people who uh, led liberal universities in South Africa. And I, I was a small part of that liberal review in that 
um, I was politically involved. In fact, I was a member of the old Liberal Party. Uh, what would want to be an accurate others? Don't think I ever paid a subscription. I was a, an active hanger on of the old Liberal Party and attended, which was which was closed down, you may, you may recall, by the by the government when well, it closed itself down because the government was insisting that it became uniracial, that you couldn't be a person of colour and a member of the Liberal Party. Um, and the Liberal Party was founded on the idea of equality, so it was absolutely unacceptable. So I attended the, uh, the meeting to close down uh, the Liberal Party. Um, I then dabbled a bit with the Progressive Party and, and joined many other societies. I was a member of the South African Institute of Race Relations and I'm not sure that all these little things are, could be of interest to you. But this was during this time when you were doing your, first of all, your, your, your uh, BSc and then your LLB. Yes. I've been this all at the University of but yes. I took quite part in many, many protests. Had my, had my room searched quite frequently uh, by the security police, interviewed by the security police, but never informed me to tell him. Um, and uh, you actually tutored in maths while you were doing your law degree? Yes. Yes, I so you continue your interest in, in maths. It's, it's, it was very, very useful to be able to, I mean, the system there was, as is in places, the, the, the students in second and third year of mathematics, if they had the aptitude, could teach the first years, could tutor the first years. And roughly equivalent to supervising it. Uh, in Cambridge terms. And that was very convenient for me because it provided me with an opportunity to earn some money while I was a, while I was a student. And so for my BSc years and then my, my law years, I was a, well, I was a fixture in the tutoring of maths um, at the Commands program. Enjoyed it, and, and uh, we already began to enjoy teaching because I like to to see people that I understand problems that have been explained explained to them. I thought the cup was clear. Uh, I think mathematicians call it the aha experience when the penny drops and you understand what is going on. Um, so that's when I I got interested in teaching, uh, and I was able to pay my bills by earning money as maths. And then, of course, I had a period only of nine months to comprise an academic year. 
uh, in which I finished my law degree. And I wasn't yet going up to Cambridge. I had this cap before I went up to Cambridge. And Exton Birchall said I would could be a temporary assistant under lecturer at the University of Wittemagdeburg. So I spent an academic year uh, teaching in the law faculty as a very junior lecturer. And perhaps that is when you published two of your earliest pieces, which appeared in 1975, some aspects of robbery and what happens when Dex Kauzai changes, both in the South African Law Journal. What drew you to these two topics at this early stage of your career? Well, the, what happens when the next cars are changes is my first article on private international law. And it was to do with a case, if I remember it correctly, where a couple had moved from East Germany to the West and eventually ended up in, in South Africa, accumulated wealth and then fallen out with each other and that marriage had failed. And the question was whether the, the law of the Soviet Republic of East Germany governed the old marriage and particularly the practical consequences thereof, um, uh, or whether it was the modern South African law or the one West German law, it's another contender. And the point was crucial was because the law had changed. And in particular, the law of East Germany had changed. I can't quite remember in what direction it had changed in the interim. And if you, if you decided that East German law was applicable, which was relatively straightforward, how did you decide whether it was the East German law at the time of the marriage or the East German law as it had now developed? And just a case concern uh, established for South African law, the principle that the law as it changes applies. It choose a legal system that includes a choice of the legal system's rules in regard to change. So if the legal system would, would have changed the law in regard to matrimonial property, if the change law would apply to the position of the country in South Africa. Um, and I could see it at that stage that my, I, I got quite interested in this really rather wicked night area. As many, many, many lawyers that come to this as private international conflict of laws has been a sort of complex marine where people shouting comprehensively at each other rather than the principal. I thought there was something more to be said about it, and I tried to say it. We quite about some aspects of robbery that, that arose out of a, one of those a gruesome cases that uh, far too common in, in South Africa, where one man had, had stabbed another man to, to death. Uh, for in a dispute over a packet of cigarettes. 
and the question was whether it was, I don't know why it wasn't murder, but the question was whether it was robbery. And he, the, the accused, a man called Tamini, and the accused, while arguing his defense, that he couldn't be guilty of robbery, he might be guilty of theft because he picked up a pack of cigarettes and made off with it. But he couldn't be guilty of robbery because the, the threat with the knife and the stabbing with the knife was not what caused him to submit to the taking of the cigarettes. The cigarettes had already fallen to the ground and were there for anybody to pick up whether he stabbed the man or not. And therefore there had been no uh, submission to the taking through the use of violence for the grand robbery. And that, of course, is a nice technical and formalistic argument that the judge was having none of it, which quite, quite rightly, I think, is a robbery for this judge. I don't know quite how I got into that because I wasn't teaching the criminal law at the time. But I think again it's the, it's the logical approach that, that made it of interest to me. The way Chris Britton was um, both very informative and also, I may say, your style of writing came through, which had been mentioned by Professor Ellison Khan when he did a review of your private international law. He, he mentioned your, and I quote, flashes of quiet, quiet humour and dry wit, and I wondered whether this was a style um, that you believe you've been able to maintain over the years in your writing on South Africa and so. UK issues. It's, it's for others to, to, to judge, but it's um, very kind of Alison Carter and another huge influence in my life. Um, but it's very kind of him to say that I've forgotten that he'd, he'd said that, but I, I would, um, I'm touched that he thought that. And yes, it's, it is, of course, the only style I've got. I don't, I don't have a, not sufficiently talented to, to write like Jane Austen one day and Friedrich Forsyth the next day or something like that. Um, I, I try to, I try to be clear. I try to be logical, and I like to think that I can sometimes point out the why idiosyncrasy that they might be. You, in 1975, you came to Cambridge to study for your LLB, uh, and you concentrated on judicial review of administrative action, civil liberties, conflict of laws, and comparative law, and the circumstances of your coming, were they, I know that you were advised and um, suggested to you by uh, Professor Birchall. Yes. But uh, is there anything else you can tell us about the your actual, how you came to Cambridge? I don't think there's anything remarkable about that. Um, were you at... Uh, Convalent Keys? Yes, I was at Convalent Keys, um, which again, that was largely due to the influence of a, a, chap, a chap, not a lawyer, who had been 
uh, a student at Conwood and Keyes, a researcher at Conwood and Keyes, who is now lecturing in Latin. And I, I, I asked him for his advice. And he said, Conwood and Keyes. Research prizes in 1976, 82, and 83. Yes. Well, no, not, not particularly prestigious research prizes, if I, if I may say so, because they were foreign research done by research students. And so they, they're not postdoctoral prizes, they're doctoral students. Research students' prizes, which obviously uh, something that I thought I, I, I could put my hat in the ring for it was successful. Uh, but I don't think they're the most prestigious prizes. I've done better, I hope. <laughs> um, so, how did you find life in the UK and Cambridge? compared to South Africa, not just physically and weather-wise, but also politically? Well, taking politically first, um, it was part of the whole, part of the whole reason why I wanted to, to go and study abroad, was to escape from the rather oppressive and cloying and injustice-dominating South African ecosystem and to come to a, a kind of polity, to come to a democracy which uh, functioned and was relatively efficient and so forth. So it was positive aspects of the British political system and even British administrative system at that stage that, that attracted UK. Um, and the great difference between university at Edinburgh and, and, and Cambridge is, of course, one was playing with the big boys now, if I can put it like that. We were at a, a world renowned university. Reason. Peter Maritzburg, much fond as I am of that university. It was a tiny little university, a few than that, 1,500 students at, uh, when I was there. So there were lots of, everybody knew everyone else, very large people. Uh, and we had a very different sense of, uh, in, in Cambridge, you know, had very high standards to, to, to achieve and to meet. It was also in a way taken for granted that you would be able to do them. The, the college provided the independent underpinning for tutorial support, supervision, and so forth, and so on. The university of the Catholic Authority. It created, at its best, I think, a situation where the student and the teacher are on the same side in. Uh, Attempting to get the student through the examination. Whereas in the, in the small universities like Peter Maritzburg, everyone knew who the example for criminal law was. And students would come around and 
fish to see whether they could get any hints as to what might be in the examination paper. Uh, and sometimes they would be successful and sometimes they wouldn't be. Sometimes the, the examiner might be potentially fairly misleading. Uh, but, well, in, in Cambridge, with the examiner being somewhat separate and theoretically, at any rate, unknown to the student, there's much less scope for that sort of thing than there used to be. More importantly, it was an intimate relationship between the student and the teacher, in which they, they collaborate together to see the student does as well as possible. That's the system when it's working as it's bad, it's best, because it doesn't always work as best. The other great change that struck me is that Keyes was a unisex college, of course, in 1975. Um, and this was matters that concerned the fellows very greatly, not the research students very much. But it was definitely a different attitude there. Uh, not that there was gender equality, but there was a mixture of genders, I think, uh, at the University of so that was quite a, quite a big difference that, that occurred to me. During this time, you were from 76 to 80, secretary and member of the Active Juridica editorial board. How did this work while you were at Cambridge, given that there was no email in those days? I, I think this may be an ambiguity. In my, in my CV. I was secretary and member of the editorial board of Active Juridica, which is a UC, UCT published uh, journal. And it, um, and it had been allowed under its previous editors to fall behind. And when I was doing this work, which was down there from 76 to 82, I and the other members of the editorial board brought it up today. We were doing this entirely in Cape Town. This was, this was when I came, came back to Cape Town in the, in the early 1980s uh, to pick up a pick up a journal that was about five or six years out of date. And I was keeping it up with, I think, that I was in the mid 76. I'm indeed the, the editor of the 76 volume. It's not that I did the work in 76, I would have done it in 78 or 79, something like that. Um, we were much helped by that, by the fact that Ben Beinart, another sort of luminous figure in South African legal academia, and he was for quite a while the Barber Professor of Jurisprudence at, at Birmingham, same chair that David Feldman held, I think, before uh, he came to Cambridge. Um, and Ben, ben Beinart, this had, had a half-organized festrift, uh, colleagues had written uh, 
various articles in praise of, of being vagrant. And the response to the invitation to help with this rescue went out so widely, and then the material came back to, to make a volume festcrift. And they made a volume festcrift to produce. And that's what what we produced, and that's how we how we caught up the, the missing years. Oh, this mammoth festcrift for being which, which, which was published published as a, uh, both separately as the festival and yearly as a active juridical volume. That's all one that the dive that makes, makes sense. Thank you. And very interesting about uh, Ben Bylord. Yes. Of course, his uh, reputation is urgent. We come now to some of the mentors or the uh, academics that you would have encountered during your first um, sojourn at Cambridge. And to this end, I've actually given you a list. I wonder whether you might run through any memories of the first of all the professors and then some of the lecturers. Well, um, talking about the professors, the one that stands out above all others in my my mind is Kurt Lipstein. Um, I attended his classes on comparative law and also conflict of law. I was very impressed by him, and he stimulated my thought about conflict of law. So is as a, as a comparative subject, that we should try and build conflict of law systems that are fitting with each other by profound comparative study of the relevant choice of law rules. Um, and he was a great enthusiast for the comparative method, and he infected me with it. Uh, so yes, he's a, um, he is certainly a, a person that I I would mention above all others, above all others, and um, there was something else I wanted to mention about Cambridge. Oh yes, uh, afterwards, many years afterwards, when the, the book Juristapolitik was published, even the account of the various people who came to this country, fled from Germany. The 1930s and so forth. Um, when that book was published, I was very pleased to be able to write the assessment of Kurt's work. And I did. Now, if it, there were, he was the only subject for when there were two entries. Yes. Um, yes, the editors would ask me to write a second one uh, from a wrong broader perspective. Uh, but anyway, he was very influential in, in my development. And not on this list, I suppose he might be on the professor's list, I was not on the professor's list either, um, uh, is Sir Otto Kahn Freud. 
who was, in 1975, Dean Goodhart Professor. And he also taught on the, on the conflict of laws course and on the comparative law course. And very often both Confo and Triplets would come to the seminars together and they would present joint seminars. Um, and that was, that was really stimulating and exciting at times. And they often had quite different things at other times when they just coincide. But the most important thing is that they were both enthusiasts. Of the, of the other, those are, those are the Cambridge professors that you mentioned, uh, some of which became uh, not yet a professor, of course, but who ought to be on this list. This was Mr. David Williams in those days. Was he, he also taught the judicial review course. Uh, and introduced me to Will Wade was still in Oxford and David Williams was perhaps the leading administrative lawyer in Cambridge at the time there are all of course there's I think I think Stanley De Smith had died so he probably might have been the leading administrative lawyer if he was still alive David Williams was the leader and was the busiest man in the university, the senior tutor of, of Emmanuel and uh, serving on the Council of the Senate and various other important bodies. And, uh, and also teaching on, on comparative or on judicial review And he had made an immense impression on me because, again, he was always on the side of the student, trying to help the student rather than make things heavy, difficult for the student. Um, and he invited me and uh, another colleague come back to his rooms in, in Emmanuel on one occasion to discuss various points of difficulty we'd had in uh, studying the course. And it was incredible that the man, literally the busiest man in the university, was prepared to give seemingly an unlimited hours to uh, his very junior students. So, I've mentioned David Williams as well as David Williams. Um, Tony Jodovich too, who will be very wretched to me. But I'm afraid I don't, I never knew him who wasn't taught by uh, Gandhi Williams or Robbie Jennings. Anyway, I don't give the names of the people I've mentioned. Um, as far as the lecturers were concerned, Nikki Tahas says, oh, oh yes, so David Williams is here, and I apologize for you, if you didn't lecturers. 
Vicky Das is mentioned, of course. I uh, was very, very pleased to, to know Vicky Das. And he was a proctor as well, so Hans Kost in that way. Spent many hours together at the Simit House, pontificating in Latin, all the students to get their degrees. Um, but I'm, I'm destroying your chronology a bit because this happened when I was in Cape Town. Um, Mickey Dars had a sinecure, or had, had, had an interested appointment, shall I say, about the devil to suggest it was a majority of the way. In that he was an external examiner of the University of Zimbabwe. And every Every Christmas time, he'd fly out to Zimbabwe and box late papers and so forth and so on. And on one of those was at sea, he came out to Cape Town and we came to visit the Bull family in Cape Town. And we got there, I got there quite well there. We got various jaunts around Cape Town and, and so forth. So I, I felt it was really quite uh, a, a, a very cautious, very measured, very precise man, and a very gentleman. I was very fond of Mickey Dars. Um, I think he was. He had some experiences in Cape Town that were very good. And this was, of course, in the, in the days of apartheid. So perhaps he had some good experiences with us. We were supposed to be up the mountain together, but um, the wind was blowing and we couldn't go up the mountain on the cable car. And we, at some stage in the center, we were going to talk about the, the world of the, the mountain in my jurisprudence. Um, that we couldn't go out the mountain because the wind was bad. So we wandered through the garden and had a lovely day. Um, it wasn't, we, we couldn't go out the mountain because uh, Mickey, Mickey had, uh, he told me we wanted to go out the mountain. It turned up in a suit with well polished brown shoes on it. <laughs> so we cancelled that. Um, we interrupted it. Speaking of Mickey Mickey Dars, he's a lovely man. And was obviously, he would tell his famous stories about what it was like being a tail gunner in the RAF during the war. I've enjoyed his time. Yes. Very positive. Eli Lautpacht, of course, was the lawyer on the committee that appointed me to win my teaching fellowship at Robinson College. He was the only lawyer on the, on, on the committee. So if I did anything wrong, he's responsible. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, a college appointment was 
mostly college fellows and one from outside to see fit back. And uh, there was no lawyer in Robinson at that stage, I don't think And then Seeley. And I'm looking for and Michael Pritchard, then Seeley particularly. I mean, they were my introduction to, uh, to Cambridge. And they really were exceptionally interested and diligent in looking after their students. And I'm sorry I haven't seen Ben Seeley for, for ages, but he moved away from Cambridge. I ain't tired. Ken Pilot claiming you slightly. He's another one of the South African mafias. John Spencer, afterwards, he was early on the lecture list, but he's the, was a professor afterwards, and a supremely wicked man and a big supplier. Never taught me to eat the camera. was part of a, a scheme to escape from South Africa. I mean, I could clearly have gone back to South Africa and learn management, got a, a teaching job if that's what I wanted uh, at one of the liberal South African universities. And alternatively, I could have gone into practice to the South African bar if. I still thought, although I was increasingly not thinking this way, I still thought the tool could be used as a, uh, as a way to achieve justice. Uh, so, but I, I thought that, I thought I had a wrong idea of New Zealand and I, I thought it would be like Britain, but in the South Pacific, it would be warm and warm and gentle and a bit exotic. Now it turned out the Christchurch it was pretty cold and snow on the ground and also to, to be frank about it, everybody, uh, I like my students very much in, in New Zealand and made some good friends. They're still friends on the staff of the University of Canterbury. Um, but New Zealand turned out to be a very long way away from anywhere wanted to set the definition. Now, the very good lawyers come from New Zealand. The newest one thing in Cambridge and so forth is not criticism of them at all. They're just that 
New Zealand's not on the way to anywhere. It's, you get there and the world stops in a way. Um, so I, I just felt very isolated in New Zealand. It was also the case that I was, I was single and it might, might be different if, if I'd been married and had a family life and so forth. So I decided to to escape from New Zealand, and I made what might have been thought to be a mistake. Lots of things turned out to be a mistake. The opportunity arose. I was approached by Cape Town and said, "Would I come back and run this human rights conference?" So I came back from New Zealand to Sydney Leadership in Cape Town. Um, and the brief to run the Public Human Rights Conference, it was about uh, just over a year from the conference, and it had to be made, made to work, and it was a, a huge endeavour. I think I'm quite proud about it. And the first of its kind? It was, yes, it was the first of its kind in South Africa. Yes. It also, which is quite a remarkable thing in South Africa at that time, everyone who wanted to come to it was allowed to come to it. We fought a, quite a battle with the South African government because um, they refused to say people who required visas, which many of the participants would. People who required visas wanted to get pre clearance, wanted the South African government to say, Yes, we'll give you a visa. And the South African government refused to commit itself in advance. These were very leading, leading people from the worlds of academia, the judiciary, here in USA, Europe, the UK. And so in the end, we took the decision to apply for for the visas and force the, force the government to, to turn down the visas if that's what they wanted to do and they could deal with the problem it would be clearly their fault. Um, rather than cancel the conference ourselves. And we did that and it worked. But the government couldn't face it in the end turning down what were in fact just distinguished professors and, and scholars and so forth, not not exactly the revolutionaries. And so we did it. The Queen Alphonse then granted the visas, they all came through. And so we considered everyone who wanted to come with them to come. Um, which, which, was, which was very good. And it also revealed. In this flattering light, some of the some of the scholars who, or I'm thinking of one, and I'm not going to mention his name, who refused to turn up because he thought it was too much of, a, of an imposition to, to for him to get a visa. He should just be granted a visa automatically in Wales. And this was really just an excuse to. We start a South African white boy with 
boycott was South African enterprise. Uh, anyway, that all happened. Its proceedings were published uh, in a single volume act of Judiciary Game. Talking with catch up. I think that was 1979 or 1980, um, and it, uh, it was a great achievement. It was, I think we'd been persuaded Michael Corbett after the Chief Justice uh, to come and give a opening address at the conference, which had 350 or so people at the opening address at the conference, in which he explicitly called for a judicial enforceable rule of rights in South Africa, which again, at the height of apartheid, was it doesn't solve everybody's problems, but it's, it's quite so we did that. Um, I don't know if you had this might be a really useful place to deal with any other questions you might have had about the Human Rights Conference. Um, I think I'm just keen to know the background which you've outlined very, very uh, succinctly. Thank you. Um, the money for it all came from American foundations, the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation, provided flights to fly. Yes. The visiting speakers, people from, from the United States, Europe, UK. Right. Well, something else that's was very interesting, it seems to me, about your this period of your life was that you actually visited the Hague, you the Hague Academy for International Affairs yes. Scholarship to study yes. Peace Palace. Yes. And um, well, that was that, that is just my interest in, in private international law. It was the year or so after the Human Rights Conference, yes. and I, uh, I I sought, in some ways, almost as a vacation, as a break from human rights and public law, and back to private international. I'm interested in that. And the, the course of the Hague still runs in the same way. It's divided into two public international and private international. And I attended the private international courts, courts and uh, made a contribution to the, to the discussions and went to lots of interesting talks in the Hague. Spent, I spent three weeks or a month in the which must fit into your book, Private International Law. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it was after after I'd been to The Hague that I came back and uh, conceived of the idea of writing the next book on Private International And uh, lots of the ideas that I developed there and gave, gave currency certainly in Southern Africa, but perhaps in other parts of the world too, um, of multilateral 
choice of law rules been used to leave a uniformity of decision out of the mass of uh, or otherwise incoherent approaches to the subject. That all comes from essentially the European influence on me through the Hague Academy. That is very interesting indeed. Um, during this time, you've published six journal articles, mostly in the South African Law Journal, and I wondered if you could sum up for us what your main research topics were during this period. I think I always did some writing on uh, conflict of laws. I've written a few things on, on constitutional law. But I think why the articles for which I would be known in this period are my jurisprudential articles. One is called Human Rights and Ideology. And it seeks, out, seeks to counter a view that was quite common in left-wing political circles in South Africa, which was to the effect that there should be very little point in having a judicially enforceable rule of rights in, in South Africa, because this would prevent an incumbent democratic government from readjusting the property, from, from, from redistributing the property in accordance with the Marxist vision of quality of value. And so there, there was, I think, quite a, a strong and a dangerous movement in different South African politics to, to get away from classic liberal ideas such as the rule of law, judicially enforceable human rights and things like that. And essentially what I did in that article, Human Rights and Ideology, was to take the views of Popper, who I had started to read in Cambridge. four or five years after my initial exposure to Popper, to, to take essentially Popper's critique of Marxism and focus it in, into a South African context. And unsurprisingly, uh, lead to the conclusion that you know, we should have a democratic polity use the judiciary to enforce human rights and so forth and so on. Which I, th I think given that I'm not, not, not saying my life but I had this effect but it was on the side of history when, when it made this critique because these days nobody suggests that the judiciary enforce human rights are, are worthless or just prevents Proper political reform. So it was a defense of classic liberalism and, and made quite a fuss at the time. 
and it may be a popular type of field. But, but I think it's it's revolving around quite pleased about an ideology. The other the other article that I wrote about the stuff which which apparently was what David Eisenhower is, is writing about um, is on the judicial process positivism and civility. John Dugard had become in South Africa the proponent of the view that the judges had a judicial discretion to make the law. And therefore, it was reasonable to call upon the judges to remake South African law in a way that excised from it the obvious injustices of racial discrimination and equality of all sorts. And this requires that, of course, the South African judges at that time parroted what I called Valgorstinianism, an idea that law was the command of the superior political superior, and that was that. Um, and this, this positivist view said you God should be rejected, and instead we should adopt one or other of the natural or serious approaches, so that you could, the judges could intervene and say, no, this is an outrageous law, it's discriminatory, whatever it is, you can strike it down as a and that was a view that <coughs> I and a friend of mine, Johan Schiller, increasingly came to question. Johan Schiller was a colleague at UCT and he left UCT at about the same time that I did. And went in for a started a commercial career uh, as an in-house company lawyer in Europe, uh, chiefly because he was needed to escape from South Africa, like as we all were at that stage. Uh, and He didn't think that he'd be able to get an academic career. So I don't think like, he'd really go into those things. Um, he, was, he was an Austrian who came to, to Cape Town to teach there for a couple of years and intended to go back. And he liked it and he stayed for a few years longer. And then, then he wanted to go back and he went back and had a successful commercial career as an in house counsel in Europe. Um, and he was a friend, he was a friend of mine. So he's a friend of mine, he was it just a weekend to um, And he really introduced me to the kind of positivism that is generally, generally held up and to be adopted by Kelsen. Johan was an Austrian, Kelsen was there. 
and your honey lie. We climb the tangle mountain together. Literally once a week, sometimes it's frequently it's three times a week, we count the mountain. And we have huge potential discussions on the mountain. And it was really quite wonderful that we, we stimulated each other and agreed among the basics and worked out everything else. And he he was friendly with me with positivism. It was not a theory of the law. Didn't tell you what the law was. As we said that it's not law if it's discriminatory. Tell you what the law was. Tell you how you found out what the law through the use of reason and logic of the sources of law. And this is what led to our criticism of John Dugard. That heartache is a legal phenomenon enforced by, <coughs> by an army of civil servants and judges and, and policemen. And it's illegal right here that it's done according to rules to a greater or lesser extent. How do you account for this phenomenon? The phenomenon, it's there, it's real. You can, you can see it in South Africa every day of the week. What account do you give of that, that phenomenon? Well, you have to have a theory of knowledge. An inferior of knowledge we said was that you found out what the law was by looking at the sources of law and applying reason and logic. If, as in South Africa's case, that meant that you had to attribute the status of law to the enactments of a deeply undemocratic sovereign parliament. You had to face up to that reality, realize that that's what one was working with, uh, rather than have just wishful thinking, or might even be thought of as political posturing, to think that the judges were going to step in and say, this particular law is, is in this kind of no longer going to have an effect. Uh, just wasn't going to happen. That as Robin had suggested in mind. And that caused a bit of a stir as people on the left who have not been put off by my human rights and ideology article. I thought we were upholding it as a current order by criticizing John Dugard. But in fairness, he said John Dugard never suggested. And I think that that was a, I think that that article, article called the judicial process, positivism and civilities. Uh, I think that, but that was another article that I'd be quite proud of. Uh, 
stage of your career is Cambridge again and I think we should leave that for our next interview and um, for now we should close with my thanking you most sincerely for a truly fascinating account which I'm extremely grateful for. You've been very patient. It's been extremely interesting and I know it's going to be of great value for the archive. Thank you very much indeed.